started uh, doing a special contribution the third Sunday of December every year, 2012. And I don't remember where we got the idea. I probably read it in a book somewhere. But we like, you know, the end of the year is a time that a lot of people are evaluating their giving. Some people for tax purposes, but more just like you're looking back at what you've done over the year and, you know, if you have anything else to give. And it's just a, t it's just a time of year that a lot of people are thinking about giving and generosity and those things. And so we started doing that in 2012. And we did it um, the first year we raised 119000 for a phase three vision. Phase three vision. At the time, I, I want to show you all this real quick because I was marking this out before the beginning of worship. At the time, this was the back wall of the worship center was right here. And we had a backstage area. So the baptistry was about right in here. And the front of the stage was right here. So this is where I would have preached in 2012. And all of you guys would have been sitting in the parking lot somewhere, or maybe in the baptistry, parking lot or baptistry. I would have preached right here. And so you can see that uh, we needed a little bit more space. And so 2012, we, we cast this vision for knocking the walls out and going back and putting the main entrance in the back and all that weird stuff and raised 119000 Well, in 2013, we gave 75000 for, um, no, it was 97000 for phase three construction. And so we started the construction. In 2014, we gave like 75000 for debt repayment. And then in 2015, 75000 for debt repayment. And then in 2016, like 90-something thousand for debt repayment. You kind of sense in a theme. We started using year and giving every year to pay down debt because when we built this new space, we had the largest debt we'd ever had in the history of the church. And we're like, we got to knock this thing out. So we used year and giving every year to pay down debt. But in 2018, our elders had an idea that we would still, debt repayment was important, but we're going to take half of whatever we raised through our year in giving contribution and fund a brand new ministry that was called Pay Grace Forward. And that was a ministry launched out of this church, and it's to help people that were caught in the trap of payday lending. And they said, we're going to give them some seed money to get started. And so we said, we'll take half of whatever's given for year in giving, and half will go to Pay Grace Forward, and half will go to the debt. And we raised $120,000. So we wrote a $60,000 check to Pay Grace Forward. 30 of that went into their collateral account, 30 of that went into their operating account, and that launched that ministry. And that ministry has a, an independent board of directors, it's an independent 501c3 now. I think there's only one or two members from Murray Hills left on the board of directors, but um, we've got, they've got a new executive director full-time, and it's doing some incredible, incredible work. But that seed money launched that ministry. And so then in... Um, this was the net 2019, we said, let's don't put anything on the debt. Let's take all of the year in contribution and just split it between some nonprofits. Let, like, let's just, let's, we're going to uh, give some seed money to Crossroads to Home, which was a new ministry in town addressing homelessness. And they were just getting started, just had a board director, really even had a, hadn't had a, form, a formal fundraiser at that point. And we said, we'll, t we'll give half to them, and then we'll give half to Belize, because they were trying to build a new church building in Belize. And our church is, is heavily invested in that ministry. So uh, we raised 130000 and we gave 65000 to Crossroads to Home. We surprised them with a check, if you remember that. We surprised them with $65,000 to start that ministry. And now, the board of directors, they got a permanent location. I don't know if they got a full-time executive director or part-time, but I know they got an executive director. And they're up and running, and they're going. And we gave money to Belize, and Belize has started that church building. And so we were like, this is fun. 
like this is this is way more fun than debt repayment. I mean, this is awesome because you get to start ministries that are going to have a, a, an impact on many, many more people for years and years, even after the this church, I mean, there's going there's to be this legacy you're leaving. Like, this is fun. We could do this all the time if we got out of debt. And so in 2020 and 2021, we, we returned to debt for just a couple of years to like, let's just knock this debt out so that we can use your in giving every year to fund new ministries or whatever it is that we need it for. Like, we're just going to leverage the, the giving power of this church to make a difference in this community. And so that's what we did, and we got out of debt in 2021. But I was just looking at all that this I'm a numbers guy, okay, so I like numbers and charts and all that. And I was looking back at all that, and I was just amazed at what God has done through the generosity of his people through one contribution. We've done 10 year-end giving contributions. We've done 10 of them and raised $1.1 million through 10 contributions. It's, it's astounding. And, and 125000 of that has gone to start two new nonprofits in Murray County, and 65,000 of that's gone to Belize, and a little over 900,000 of that has gone to, to build this facility that we're sitting in right now. And they also built the student center at the same time with that. And I'm telling you that because I'm getting ready to share what this year's year in giving is going to go toward, and it's a pretty big number. <laughs> and I know some people are going to go, well, we can't do that. Goodness, that's a lot of money. We can't do that. And I, I'm telling you, I think we can. I think we can. Um, this year, you know where it's going this year because we launched a new vision a couple weeks ago for Hope Center Ministries. And we want to launch a residential recovery program uh, in Murray County. Hope Center Ministries would lead that. We would be the partner church. And here's the way it would work. This is what they're looking for. Hope Center is looking for 5 to 10 acres of land and about 5,500 to 6,000 square foot of, of living space. They could buy an existing home and remodel it, which they've done in a lot of towns, or they could build a new center. But you can do the math in Murray County, 5 to 10 acres, 5,500 square foot. Uh, it's going to be somewhere north of a million dollars that it's going to take to get this off the ground. Now, we're not going to assume any debt because Hope Center is going to assume the debt. They're the ones that are going to finance in this. What our church's responsibility is is to raise the down payment and to raise enough money to purchase two 15-passenger vans and to raise enough money to go ahead and hire the initial staff before they're up and running so that you got a local director on the ground that could go ahead and, and get things going. That's going to be a $260,000 check that we're going to write to Hope Center. That's what we've committed to, and, and that 100% of that's going to go down payment uh, on the note, uh, the 15-passenger vans, and the local staff. 260000 now, our elders have already given 10, so we, we've got some cash reserves because once we got out of debt, we started building up some cash reserves. You know why you do that? You don't spend it. Once you get out of debt, you don't spend everything because that's how you get back in debt. you got to start building up some savings so that when the HVAC unit breaks and the roof is leaking or whatever, you got some savings to fall back on. So we built up a little bit of cash reserves. And we went ahead and cut a $10,000 check just to say, we're committed to this, we're on board, you, you know, let's, let's start building, let's start personal, whatever it takes. So we've got to raise $250,000, and um, we've never raised that much through year in giving. So the elders have already kind of looked and said, well, we could, we could allocate maybe, you know, 50 more, maybe 100 more. Like, I'm, and I haven't even talked about this with them. I, I changed my goal on the way here to church because originally I was going to tell you we need to raise $150,000. And, and I think we could get there because last year we did one thirty-five, so one hundred fifty. dollars so $150,000, that's not that much more. Um, but on the way here I thought, well, you don't have because you don't ask. Somebody said that. And so uh, 
I think the goal ought to be $200,000. And we've only done that one other time in the history of this church. Raised $200,000 one other time, and that was when we were launching a second campus. And uh, if you remember, that was pre-COVID, and we were much bigger pre-COVID than we were post-COVID. I mean, there's no doubt we're a smaller church post-COVID than we were pre-COVID, but I think in many ways we're a stronger church. And I'm, I'm asking us to raise 200000 on December 18th to launch the Hope Center. And uh, so that's required. Some of you are going to have to write some really big checks. Uh, those of you that can, you know who you are, are going to have to write some big checks. Some of you are going to have to write some, some little bit medium-sized checks. And some of you are going to have to write some smaller checks. And, but if everybody pitches in, and I'll do the math for you a little bit later because I've got to get into preaching here in just a minute. But um, if everybody pitches in, we can do this. We've got enough families at this church to make this happen on December 18th. And I told Carson Plant, because they're ready to go. We've identified two pieces of property already. And we were like calling, and he's like, well, we can't, we can't put a contract on anything until we have, you know, the funds and we know that we can get the finance and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, we're ready to go. You just tell us when. And I said, well, December 19th, we'll be ready to go. And he said, you really think you can do it in one contribution? Like, this is like a year-long thing. You're t- one contribution? I said, you'd be surprised. So, uh, so I'm challenging us to $200,000. That's the challenge that I've got for year in giving this year. Uh, go ahead and start thinking about it. Start praying about it. Um, start discussing it with your spouse and all of that stuff. And, uh, and let's, let's try to get this thing off the ground and start changing some lives uh, in Murray County. So I, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm nervous about it and excited about it at the same time. So uh, be thinking and praying about that. All right, let's, <clears throat> let's get into Romans. Romans chapter 7. Melinda uh, did such a good job last Sunday setting me up uh, for the rest of this series. So she talked about how Romans can really be split into two parts. You know, the first half of Romans is about justification. And justification is just a word that means to be made right. And the first half of Romans is about how we are made right through Jesus. It's not anything that we've done that makes us right. And another way of saying it is righteous, you know, but we don't like righteous because it sounds kind of presumptuous. But, you know, we can be made righteous not through anything we've done or not who we are, but it's who God is and what God has done. And that's the first half of the book of Romans. The second half of the book of Romans is about sanctification. And sanctification is um, another one of those big words, and it simply means made holy, to be made holy. And holy doesn't mean perfect, it means set apart. So we are, we are made right through what God did through Jesus Christ. And we are made holy, or we are set apart through the work of the Spirit. And that's where Paul's going to go next in this letter. So the rest of these chapters, he's going to be talking about the work of the Spirit and how we're sanctified. Now that we've been saved by grace, we are sanctified now uh, to do the work of the Spirit. And this came up a couple of weeks ago, in a, well, was, I think it was last week or this week, I can't remember, they start running together, um, in an elders meeting. And we were, we were meeting with prospective elders and, and current elders, and we're going through that process right now. And we were talking about particular issues, and we're like, how would you handle it as a leader of the church? How would you handle if this happened or this happened? And, and somebody said, and I think two, two different guys said it, some, and we're talking about some situ, situations and issues, said, well, as leaders, it's not our job to change people. That's the work of the Spirit. And I just thought, how refreshing that is to have a church leadership that believes it's the work of the Spirit to change people and not their job to change people. Because I've been in plenty of churches that felt like it was their job to change people. That, you know, like whether you're, it's a preacher or a pastor or a priest or a bishop, or like it's, it's our job 
with enough rules, with enough discipline, with enough shaming, with enough guilt, whatever it is, we can change people. It's our jobs as leaders to change people. And it's not our jobs as leaders to change people. It's our jobs to lift up Jesus. It's our jobs to preach the word. It's our jobs to create an atmosphere for the spirit to work. But it is the spirit's job uh, to change people. And the Jewish believers in Rome felt like they could change people. They, they were pretty confident that they could change people. And the thing that they thought they could change people with was the law. And Paul spent like 150, 160 different verses saying, no, you're not, you're not changing anybody by the law. You're not any better because you have the law than those who don't have the law. And so he's been trying to tell them all throughout this first half of the book that you are not justified by the law. You're justified by faith. The law has not changed you. And he says that you... Uh, have died to the law you have died to the law and you're now uh, bound to Christ and so in chapter 7 he he kind of uses an illustration the first four verses are an illustration of what he said in at the end of chapter 6 so chapter 6 you're no longer a slave to sin but you're a, a slave to God and so he gives an illustration of what that looks like in chapter at the beginning of chapter uh, 7 I want to start reading in, in 4 chapter 4 so our verse 4 so chapter 7, verse 4, I want to start reading there. It says, so, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work within us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what's once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we... So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And that's the, that's the summary of everything he said to this point. We now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. And, uh, you know, he's, you died to sin. This is, Jesus did this for you. This is what Jesus did for you through his sacrifice. You're called to live according to the Spirit, which is the process of sanctification. That's what the Spirit's at work, making us holy, making us more Christ-like. We're living according to the ways of God rather than uh, the ways of sin. And it's pretty straightforward. Like I, I, our small group just wrapped up our last meeting. I know some of you are meeting your last meeting today. We meet on Wednesday night, so we wrapped up uh, Wednesday night. And I just keep coming back to in Romans like, it's so simple. Like, why do we make this thing so difficult? And I'm talking about Christianity and faith. Like, it's just, it's just so simple. And, but for some reason, we complicate it. And it's because as Christians, we are like all people. We have a habit of, of doing that. And we have a habit of going to the extremes. And I like what Warren Worsby says in his commentary about it. Um, he, he puts it this way. He says, uh, something in human nature makes us want to go to extremes which is a weakness from which Christians are not wholly free. So here's the two extremes. When you, when you hear what Paul says in the first five or six chapters, since we're saved by grace, some would argue, we're free to live as we please. And he says that's the extreme of license. And Paul addressed that in, in Romans chapter 6. You know, shall we go on sinning so that grace may be abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So that's this extreme of like extreme grace. Like I'll just do whatever I want because the more I sin, the more God's grace increases, which is a crazy argument, but Paul addresses that in chapter 6. But the other extreme is, well, we can't ignore God's law. We are saved by grace, absolutely. But we must live under law if we are to please God. This is the extreme expression of legalism. <laughs> now, 
I'm so couched in legalism. When I read that line from Worsby, I thought, that's not legalism. That's just common. You know, we're saved by grace, but we must live under law. I think I said something like that in one of these sermons. Like, yeah, we're not, the rules don't save us, but we still, still need rules. We still got to follow the rules in order to please God. And, and Worsby defines it just a little bit more and see if this sounds familiar. Legalism is the belief that I can become holy and I can please God by obeying laws. So legalism is measuring spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. The weakness of legalism is that it sees sins, plural, but not sin, the root of the trouble. It judges by the outward and not the inward. Furthermore, the legalist fails to understand the real purpose of God's law and the relationship between law and grace, which is where Paul goes next. So go back to the text, chapter or verse, uh, verse 7. Let's read this. What shall we say then? <clears throat> this is Paul again. Is the law sinful? Well, certainly not. Uh, nevertheless... I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So Paul's going to give us the purpose of the law right here. One, it's to reveal sin. So I know what it is because of the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. But I am not. Verse 14. We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now, a couple of things he's saying here. He, he says at the beginning that the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. So it's, it's through the law, it's through the rules, that we know what sin is. Because until the law said do not covet, I didn't know what coveting was. But when the law said do not covet, I understood what it was. But he says something else that's very significant here about what the law does or what the rules do. And um, the best way I can explain it is, is with an analogy. Okay, If I were to tell you and I'm, I'm going I'm to give you a rule that I'm going to ask you to follow um, for the rest of this sermon. Do not look at the time. If you are wearing a watch, do not look at your watch right now. Do not look at the time. Do not get a phone out and look at the time. There is a clock on that wall back there. Do not look at that clock on the wall back there. I do not want you to know what time it is, and I don't want you to know for the rest of this sermon. So do not, under no circumstances, do not, uh-uh, eyes up here, under no circumstances do I want you to look at the time. That is the simple rule that I'm giving you for the rest of this sermon. Now, for some of you, no problem, right? Probably a minority. For a minority of you, someone one of you just checked your phone, didn't you? I heard it. Uh, but for a minority of you, you're like, that's no big deal. I wasn't curious what time it was. Anyway, I don't need to look at the time. But for the rest of us, and probably the majority, everything within us right now wants to look at the time. Like, I didn't want to look at my watch until you mentioned it, and now I kind of want to look at my watch to see what time it is. And we want to do that not because we're curious, that may be part of it, but because we're rebellious. 
Because as soon as we hear a law like that, in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, you ain't going to tell me when I can look at my watch and when I can't look at my watch. If I want to look at my watch, I'll look at it right now. If I want to turn around and look at that clock, I'll look at it right now. Nobody's going to tell me when I can look at the time and when I can't look at the time. You tell me to not look at the time, I will look at the time just to show you that you're not the boss of me. Now, isn't that, so the law not only reveals sin, the law actually arouses sin. Like having the law and having the rule, any of you who've ever raised teenagers know this, right? Having a rule arouses rebellion, right? Whatever the, or if you've been a teenager for that matter. I mean, when the parents say, you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, what are you going to do? You're going to take it just to the extreme edge, maybe over the edge just a little bit. But you're going to, you're going to, because that's what, what do we call it? We call that rebellion, right? That's what you do. You rebel against whatever rules your parents have. I mean, this is not just teenage, actually. This is kids. I like when Hallie, um, I, rem- I shouldn't have, I wasn't going to say her name. I was just going to say one of my kids. But when Hallie was uh, a toddler, I remember, like, I, for, I don't know what I was telling her not to touch, but I remember the look on her face because I was looking at her face. I was looking at her, and she was looking at me, and I was like, do not touch that, Hallie. Do not touch it. And she just looked at me and looked straight in my eyes and went, and touched it. Like, just, I dare you to do something about it, which I did, do something about it. But, I mean, you know, I mean just, that's defiance, that's rebellion. But the only reason she wanted to touch it is because I was telling her not to touch it. And that's, that's one of the things that the law does. It, it arouses sin within us. So we think, legalists think, that by, by a multitude of rules, we're going to save ourselves. The more rules we have, the more people are going to be in line. But the more rules we have, the more we want to rebel against them. And so, it, and even if we wanted to, follow them. Even if we wanted to follow the rules, we still struggle to follow the rules. Now this next passage, and and this is just Paul saying, I just want you to understand the function of the law and how this works. This next passage right here is probably the most encouraging and the most depressing part of the letter. And of Romans chapter 7, I've probably preached on this one more than any. And it's a little confusing to read because, you know, like Melinda said, Paul tends to be a little verbose. But Start in verse 15, and look at this. The most encouraging and the most depressing part of the letter. This is Paul. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, well, okay, I agree the law is good. But as it is, it's, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's the sin living in me. For I know that good itself This is the Apostle Paul. I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do. That's what I keep on doing. And now, and this is a lot of do, so I get that. It's a little confusing, but you understand it. It, If I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So see if this sounds familiar. Verse 21. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law in my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, on one hand, that's encouraging to me because I read it and go, this is Paul. Like, this is the great apostle. This is the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. This is from whom we get most of our Christian doctrine in the church today. This is Paul. And if Paul is struggling with sin, well, then maybe there's hope for me because I still struggle with sin. 
I mean, so, I mean, like that's, so it's encouraging to see that because I, I, I read that and go, I had the same thing in me. I want to do good, but and there's this thing, there's this sinful nature that's fighting against the good that I want to do, and I don't want to do bad, but there's this sinful nature fighting against it. So on one hand, it's encouraging. On the other hand, it's depressing because I think, well, if Paul can't even do it, I mean, this is the guy. If the great apostle Paul, he's a, if he can't even do it, and I found out this week, there's a whole lot of debate about this particular passage of Scripture because there were a whole lot of Christians that said, well, we don't like that image of Paul. He must be talking about his life before he became a Christian right here. That must be what he's talking about because, I mean, Paul struggling with sin? You're not supposed to struggle with sin after you're a Christian. You know, we don't like this. So he's talking about his pre-saved life right here. He's kind of This is kind of like a reflection. He's going back in his pre-saved life. Well, I'd never heard that argument before. I'm not surprised that we try to make that argument, but I, I'm like, I, I'm totally comfortable with that being Paul because that just tells you that Paul's human, and just like all humans, we have a sinful nature in us and we have the spirit in us, and the sinful nature and the spirit want things that are contrary to each other, and so we're always fighting against that because we know we should turn the other cheek, but we don't want to turn the other cheek, and we know that we should be patient, but we don't want to be patient. And we know that you know, we should love our enemies, but we don't want to love our enemies. And so we're constantly fighting against that. And it's the little angel and the devil, you know, and that's in the cartoons. It's, it's very similar to that. And, Paul's, and he just says, you know, what's going to save me from this? Like if this is the situation, that's why it's depressing to me. If this is the situation, what will save me from this? But understand, that is a rhetorical question. Paul's not asking a question that he doesn't know the answer to. He knows the answer. And take a look at verse 25. He says... Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but my sinful nature, I'm a, sl- I'm a slave to the law of sin. So again, this is like the summary of this whole thing is like, who's going to save me from this wretched situation that, that Paul is in, but we're all in. Who's going to save us from that? Who's going to save us from that battle that is a constantly at war in our soul and our mind? Jesus Christ saves us from that. And Jesus is the only one who can save us from that. More rules can't save us from it. More morals can't save us from it. More church can't save us from it. Uh, more Bible study can't save us from it. You know, what, like all those things, that all the other ways that we try to fix it can't save us from it. License can't save us from sin. You know, when Worsby talks about those two extremes, license doesn't save us from sin because license doesn't even attempt to control sin. License just further embeds us in sin because license just says, I'll just do whatever I want and I'll just keep going. That doesn't save us. Legalism doesn't save us either, though. Because legalism thinks, well, I can control sin with more willpower and more self-discipline. But none of us have as much willpower or self-discipline as we think we do. And even if we did, we still ain't Jesus. (laughs) So we still can't save ourselves. And so what Paul's saying here is that Jesus is the only one that has the capacity to do this. Jesus is the only one who can save us. And thanks be to God that he does deliver us. I keep thinking about, um, and I think I got this, do I have this slide up there, Noah, about the I can't, God can? I may not have because I don't know if I saw it before church. Um, um, you remember when Jeff was talking about Hope Center and he gave the little three-point uh, summary of recovery? And this is from Celebrate Recovery, so I don't know that this was original to Jeff. But the three-point summary of recovery was, I can't, God can, so I'm going to let him. And I'm like, that's the summary of Romans. 
Romans 1 through 3, Paul has clearly said, I can't, and you can't either. <laughs> that's, that's the summary of Romans 3. I can't, and you can't either. For, the way, I mean, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 through 6, maybe 3 through 7, is God can. But all are freely justified through the grace that comes through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So God can, and God does. And then the rest of the book is, why don't we let him? So Romans chapter 8 gets into what it looks like to live life through the Spirit. Once you realize that I can't and God can, why don't I let him? What does it look like to live out letting God take control? What does it look like to live out letting God guide my ways, guide my thoughts, guide my attitude, guide my actions, guide my words? What does that look like? And so I'm going to encourage you to, to read that uh, chapter 8. That's where we're going to go next Sunday. And uh, it's a long chapter. I'm just looking at that. But we got chapter 8, well, 1 through 39. Read that sometime this week. It's a good reading for Thanksgiving, but it's also uh, a good reading for the first Sunday of Advent because we're going to be talking about hope and, and what that looks like. So I'm going to say a word of prayer for us, and, uh, and we'll wrap up. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for um, thankful for the honesty of Scripture right now. I'm thankful that you know you inspired Paul to write what he did in Romans seven, so that we don't have this perception of he's perfect because he's not perfect, and and no church leader is perfect, and none of us are perfect, and that's why we need you, and that's why we need your Son Jesus, and uh, I just I pray that we would always remember that. And we would always center ourselves in that. And, and we would always be humble enough to, uh, to confess that it's not what we do. Uh, it's not the good that we do. It's not the bad that we do that determine our standing with you. It's, it's what we do with Jesus that determines our standing with you. And if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus as our Savior, then we're made right in your eyes. And we're thankful for that. And I also pray for that process of sanctification, of being set apart, that I pray that you allow the Spirit to work in our lives and you allow the Spirit to work through this church so that we may be set apart for your purposes and for your glory. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.